What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Everybody, you just missed our OnlyFans special. Mike is an incredibly talented guy. You'll have to get behind the paywall to get on there. No, I'm just kidding. This is In Liberty and Health, episode number 44. I got the great Mike Isratel with me today. How you doing? Uh, I'm good. What is that called when they're behind a wall and there's a, 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 a hole in the wall? <laughs> That's called a glory the, hole. It's the saxes put through the hole back and forth. Yes. That. <laughs> That's what the OnlyFans was. So if you want to sign up, link in my bio. Oh, there we go. Yeah, see, well, uh, you know, Mike is a total wealth of knowledge when it comes to the world of training and nutrition, which I'm sure we'll hit on a little bit of that. But, um, you know, kind of give a brief history and background on who you are and how you got to be where you are now. Oh, boy. Um, Where do I begin? AK. So I was born in Moscow, Russia uh, in 1984, quite an ominous year. And uh, in 1991, my parents finally decided that communism was awful. So they moved us to the United States to the glorious megalopolis, flying cars and VR of Detroit, Michigan. I'm not kidding. Actually, that's where we went. And believe it or not, uh, the Soviet Union sucked so bad that Detroit was like infinitely better. We were unbelievably impressed the entire time. We were impressed with how clean the city of Detroit was. Give that some thought. So uh, yeah. So uh, age seven came to the States, went to uh, elementary school, middle school and high school in Metro Detroit, Michigan. We did my undergrad in Ann Arbor, Michigan at University of Michigan. And sort of during that, uh, let's see, ninth grade, I started wrestling and I decided that was really fun. And I also started to try to get strong for wrestling by lifting weights. And then I got addicted to lifting weights. In college, I competed as a power lifter. And then uh, towards the end of undergrad, I realized my passion was in reading muscle magazines and staring at all those glorious men with their pecs and veins and bulges. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to be one of these guys. So I started trying to bodybuild. Um, worked as, um, let's see, personal trainer back in college. Then got my master's degree at uh, Appalachian State uh, in North Carolina. That was a really good time. Got a chance to train D1 football players there. That was really cool. Did a year in New York city at a sort of elite private personal training studio. That was really awesome. Got trained a bunch of super loaded people and really smart people. And then I, I, I figured I didn't really know enough yet. And I went and got my PhD at East Tennessee State University. That was where Dr. Mike was really born in the technical sense. That's where I got my PhD. It's also where I learned pretty much all my sports science uh, up to that point. And then I became a professor. My uh, friend, Nick Shaw and I started Renaissance Periodization. Uh, training and nutrition company. First, it was just coaching athletes um, and just busy professionals that wanted to get in shape. Then I mentioned books and digital products, and now we have an app and more digital products on the way. And I still am a professor part-time online, but now mostly I do Renaissance periodization stuff, and I've got a, got a whole big YouTube channel. I've written a bunch of books, blah, 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 and I'm a competitive bodybuilder. My last competition was Masters USA's, and I took second in the super heavyweights, which is pretty sweet. Um, and I looked really cool. I had like uh, all, all sorts of stuff going on in my body, which is awesome. And now I'm uh, for the next two years, hopefully if my health holds up, I'll be gaining mass and trying to get enormous and seeing if that's uh, pretty cool. So ta-da. Nice, nice. Well, uh, I'm on a little bit of a mass phase myself, which is the first time ever. You look jacked. Oh, well, I just finished my workout. I, I was going to joke with you saying you need to compliment my pump before we get on. <laughs> you got it before even asking me. Unbelievable. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, um, I did the carnivore diet for about two years, which I know you're, I, I could see your, uh, the smoke coming out of your head right now, because I know you're a pretty big carb guy, but, um, Literally. I'm yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm coming back around to uh, carbohydrates. Now, not my macros. I'm about five, 10 to six feet. I haven't really measured myself in the last like 10 years, <laughs> but, um, 
I lost about 45 pounds, and I'm sure some of that was probably muscle along the way, eating anywhere from 1,800 to 2,400 calories a day. I went from about 225 down to like 180, but now I'm at about, I'm floating around 190 right now, and I'm kind of reversing and doing a little bit of maintenance as well. Uh, 260 grams of carbs a day, 190 grams of fat, 205 grams of protein, and I've never felt better. And um, I kind of implore the carnivore and the low carb people now to like, hey, don't be so zealous. Don't be afraid of carbohydrates. They're not going to make you fat. It, it's, I'm sure you've probably seen this too, but uh, some of these low carb people will have a, you know, day off the wagon, right? And you know, they'll eat all the same high fat foods. And then they have, you know, a whole ton of cheesecake and some fruit. And they're like, oh my God, these blueberries, these carbs are making me so fat. It's, I implore people like, hey, if you just up the brakes, be a little reasonable, you'll, you'll be surprised. <laughs> yeah, it's all, it all comes down to most of the calories in the end. Uh, right, right. People always talk about, oh, you know, I was really fat back when I ate carbs or I fell off the leg and ate carbs and I got really fat. And they sort of blame the carbohydrates. And then you sort of have to ask the question of like, why do bodybuilders get leaner than everyone else eating carbs? <laughs> well, they keep their fats so low that their calories are low and thus they get really lean. So at the end of the day, can you eat a low fat, high carb diet and get lean and get healthy? Yes. Can you eat a high fat, low carb diet? Also, yes. Can you eat a high fat, high carb diet? Well, it's just a lot of calories and it's got to go somewhere. So it's going to go into body fat at some point. Yeah. So, um, it's definitely kind of been a uh, changing thing for me because I used to be the kind of Gary Tobbs guy. I listened to a whole bunch of those lectures. And then after a while, I started listening to more guys like you, Lane Norton, okay. um, uh, uh, you know, the guys who kind of have a lot of skin in the game per se, and it really sure. changed my outlook. And, um, you know, I'm definitely a lot healthier and better off for it. And now kind of looking back at those times and seeing how some people do, I realize why people kind of turn their wheels um, do you train any low carbohydrate athletes or, um, you know, do you kind of say like, eh, you know, um, I've consulted folks that were trying to do low carb for like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or mixed martial arts. Mm -hmm. And what I would do with them is get them to eat a little bit of carbohydrates pre and post workout. Okay. And they usually within a few days say that their energy and recovery is like unreal better. And I say, oh, you know, it's probably because of the carbs. And they go, okay. And then we'll say, you want a few more carbs? And, you know, you don't just take someone who's been keto for a long time and put them on, like, kid's cereal. You you just have low glycemic, you know, just some fresh fruit, some yeah. veggies. And, the, you know, you don't really ever feel bad after eating fresh fruit. Like, that just doesn't happen. No. You can eat some carbs you're not used to and feel kind of weird after, you know, not eating carbs for a long time. And then slowly we sort of expand the repertoire to include more and more carbs and then eventually whole grains. And then eventually even processed grains, uh, you know, post pre and post workout and some other meals of the day. And then at some point they look back and someone's like, hey, like, you know, you're going to go keto again to lose weight. And they think about, OK, well, when I was keto, I didn't perform all, all that well. I'm performing way better now, recovering better now. Also, like I, uh, carbohydrates are objectively fucking tasty. So is it OK if I swear on here, by the way? Is, is that, uh, dude, dude, you're good. You're good. So uh, I should have asked before. I never do. Um, <laughs> so, <fine>. you know, <laughs> they, uh, they look back and they think, well, I don't really want to go back to not eating a whole bunch of my now favorite foods. And they, they don't often come back. So mm -hmm. I, 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 it's, um, it's an interesting observation now that I'm sort of recounting it. People who have done low carb before and then are reintroduced to this kind of a scientific approach to eating with healthy carbohydrate foods, they, they very rarely go back to keto or low carb because you're giving up so much then. But a lot of people go to low carb and keto and stuff like that and carnivore from eating kind of like shit. And yeah. then that's actually probably an improvement, you know, because if you're on the McDonald's diet, gee whiz, you know, there's not any very many directions you could go that's down from there. It's all all roads lead to Rome then. And then eventually some way uh, down that road, you may be introduced to, you know, dosing your carbohydrates around your workout and then expanding your carbohydrate repertoire. And then eventually you're like, oh, this is great. I'm eating like a normal person. And then once you understand calories and calorie balance, you can even have a piece of cheesecake now and again. And you don't feel like death because of it. Um, most of the time, you know, as I sort of mentioned before, people say carbs made them fat. And you look back at their high carb day and it's just 8,000 calories of pizza and pasta. And, and you're like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> we used to have a thing that uh, used to happen a lot 
maybe about five years ago. Do you remember when gluten was like enemy number one that everyone was uh, <laughs> gluten intolerant? Yep. We used to have people say all the time in, in RP clients, um, Facebook group that like, oh, I think I'm sensitive to gluten. And other people would ask, well, why do you think? I said, well, you know, like anytime I have carbs, I just like, I have like a really bad like reaction in my GI tract and it's not good. And they're like, well, so what did you have? And they're like, well, you know, my kid's at a birthday party and I ate all the leftover pizza and like 10 breadsticks. I'm like, okay, really? Of all of that, gluten is enemy number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out like, you know, when they actually have like a few slices of whole grain wheat toast, they feel amazing and they have great workouts. It's like, I don't think you're gluten intolerant. I think you're just eating dog shit. So I think it's good that people do these kinds of carnivore and keto diets when they're coming from just eating like fucking animals. But if you're coming from eating a very healthy diet, a lot of times, uh, unless it's a rare case, you know, people are pretty hard to sell on low carbs because gee whiz, you know, carbs give you energy and uh, boy, oh boy, do they taste good. And they also expand your food choices. You know, if you're really consistently low carb, then you go to parties and hangouts and fuck, man, you're just kind of screwed because there's nothing to eat. Yeah, you know, I definitely was there because I remember going to uh, my fiance's um, parents' house on Thanksgiving and Christmas and looking at all the delicious food. And then as soon as I just got my hand on one thing, dude, it was game over. And, you know, next it's thing so you know, good then. Oh, my God. Well, you know, I'm kind of thankful for it now looking back at it because now I realize that, oh, you know what? My fiance and I can go out to the Cheesecake Factory and we can both enjoy a piece of cheesecake without me ending up face down in the red velvet, the s'mores, the cookies and cream. I could just have one and I could be happy with that. And then the next day, you know, we're we're all good. I didn't gain 10 pounds. (laughs) 100%. So um, the one thing that I hear you talk about that nobody else really talks about is deloading. Um, and this is another reason why I wanted to have you on is because actually I'm not entirely uh, familiar with the concept and I'm sure I could probably use it after just kind of beating the hell out of myself for the last couple of years. But um, explain deloading to the basic idiot who's just throwing around as much weight as they possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, if you train consistently and you train hard, your the degree of fitness, like how big your muscles are, how strong you are, tends to go up but your fatigue tends to go up and often faster. You just get tired. And uh, there's a bunch of body systems of yours which kind of wear down. Your muscles have little micro tears in them every workout. And most of them heal between workouts, week to week to week, but not all of them. because they start expanding and connecting to other tears. And if you just keep doing that, your probability of actually tearing the muscle like at a large scale goes up. Your tendons, your connective tissues, your ligaments, et cetera, undergo the same process. A lot of the times if you train really hard, your hormonal system sort of gets off whack a little bit the uh, amount of testosterone your body produces tends to go down. The amount of cortisol tends to go up. So your stress levels are essentially sort of climbing. And that does a couple things. The main one it does is it limits how much you can get results-wise. And it essentially causes plateaus to develop where you're getting bigger, getting stronger, getting bigger, getting stronger. And then all of a sudden you're doing not a whole lot of either. And you're not really sure why. And you're really tired and you're really beat up. And you, you just try to squat and you pulled something in your quad. It's not a big deal, but you're like, God damn, what the fuck's going on? And at that point, uh, a deload is just a week of training that is like less number of sets than usual and generally lighter weight than usual. So your body doesn't have a hard time recovering from it at all. And because your body doesn't have to recover much from that week's training, it starts to recover all the shit that was broken from all the other weeks of training that came before it. And then once it does that, the next week after the deload, you are super fresh to training and you get a lot of the same results that you used to when you were more like a beginner. And then you sort of like re-dip into noob gains again. And it not only you know, prevents injury or reduces the chance that you'll get large injuries or chronic injuries, it's also really good psychologically because it's really difficult to burn out of training if you never burn out of training. You know, if you are going to the gym all the time and your fatigue is climbing, 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 psychologically that can affect you in a really negative way where you just, just don't want to fucking be there anymore. Like at the gym fucking blows. If you add on top of that, physiologically, you're not making PRs anymore. Like you're not even getting very strong because the fatigue is so high. But that doubly sucks because working out is real hard. Working out when you're fatigued is really hard. Working out when you're fatigued and you haven't been getting strong in the last couple of weeks, is just fucking demotivating. So people burn out and they quit. But if you do deloads every, oh, you know, four to eight weeks or something, just a week of easier training or hardly any training at all. At the end of that week, you can't fucking wait to go to the gym and smash shit. And that kind of recycles you, uh, reinvigorates you and gives you another, you know, one to two months of hard training ahead. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a beautiful way to put it. And uh, that actually sounds a lot more simple than I kind of thought I was thinking, okay, well, is there a specific percentage? Is there this? Is there that? But I recall hearing about a study, I think they said 
you can maintain the same muscle mass on a ninth of the training volume that you use to get to the mass that you are. So um, I feel like some people just feel like it's all or nothing. I'm sure you've kind of seen it too. And it kind of goes back to diet as well, is that people want to run six miles in a day every day for, you know, months and months on end. And they want to completely cut all carbs and fast for 20 hours a day just to burn the candle at every single end. So they see those results and it's addicting because you look at the scale and you see, oh man, look at all this weight dropping. And then you plateau and then you're really stuck at a point of, okay, well, do I got to drop my calories? Do I got to do more cardio? You're in a bad position when you get to that Kind of point. Well, two things. One, all or nothing is actually a logical fallacy. There's a fallacy called the all or nothing fallacy. And as generally speaking, things are almost never all or nothing. So, you know, like there's bodybuilders I follow on Insta that are like, either you give it everything or you give it nothing. And it's like, okay, why do you have friends? Because they're probably keeping you away from the gym at least sometimes. Why aren't you taking grams and grams and grams of steroids? You're only taking a few grams. It should be taking 20 because you said all or nothing. I mean, the aliens are going to destroy the earth in four weeks. If you don't get as jacked as possible, you're not going to be taking two grams of gear. You're going to be taking 10. So they don't even follow their own advice. Never really mean that. I mean, it's just like some motivational bullshit people say uh, when they don't feel all that excited. And then secondly, you know, if <laughs> uh, it's all about what actually works in the real world. You know, the people that say all or nothing usually fall off bandwagons like a motherfucker. And the people that find a sustainable way to go to the gym four or five days a week and actually enjoy the process, they end up getting pretty fucking jacked. And that's just how it is. People think like an all or nothing mentality is something elite athletes have. In, in reality, the, the, the highest fraction of people have an all or nothing mentality, in my observation, is like New Year's resolutioners. And we know that as a group of people, you know, individual exceptions notwithstanding, they just suck. You know, like they just get nothing done and they quit three weeks later. So that whole lot of nothing bullshit is is fucking rough. I just wouldn't recommend it. Uh, try to figure out, you know, what's sustainable for you, what you really like to do. Get on that wagon. And when it comes time to take a break, take a break and understand that, like it's strategic. And so here more to that second point. Like imagine you had uh, you were running like a software company or something like that. And let's say you didn't know much about software. You were just the expert that, let's say, like you knew a ton about how to create shopping websites and you were brilliant at make shopping websites. You got a computer engineer who works for you. He's fucking brilliant. And he's making the back end for you. Okay. I have no, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I've never done any of this, but I, I promise the analogy will work. Okay. This guy's fucking brilliant. And you got a project that's going to take him six months to make. And after that, you're both fucking billionaires. You sell the shit to Facebook. It's fucking golden. And you notice that after three weeks, he's like red eyes and shit. And you're like, hey, uh, hey, Carl, when's the last time you went home to see your family? He's like, I haven't. I've just been working on this project. You're like, what are you going to say? You're going to be like, yeah, fuck yeah, Carl. All or nothing, motherfucker. Let's get this coding done. Like, no, kind of probably he's your golden goose. You don't want him to die at his fucking desk. So you say, Carl, listen, you know, uh, why don't you take a few days off? Can you imagine if you said the kind of dumb shit lifters say when you ask them to take time off? You're like, no way, man. I'll lose all my coding skills. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you like, and then you look at the last shit he's been coding because he's been there for like 86 hours straight. And it's just all like, just like A, B, C repeated on the screen. You're like, Carl, you're not even, you're not even coding anymore. He's like, oh shit, I was seeing all kinds of weird alien numbers. You're like, dude, I think you're in the middle of a dream. You need to go the fuck home and take a nap. Like that would be good advice. So, but when we see hardcore people in the gym and they're like, no days off, for some reason we're like, damn man, this guy's got what it takes. Like, no, the guy's a fucking idiot. Um, not only do you not lose muscle if you train one third to one ninth as much as you normally do, that's over the course of months. A week of not training, as long as you don't like go to a rave and are on cocaine 100% of the time and eat no food for 96 hours, you just won't lose any muscle that we can measure with any device we have. So a week of not training at all doesn't result in any muscle loss. People think it does because you lose what's called tonus, like your muscles deflate a little bit because they're not always damaged and sort of half pumped. But literally the first session, you go back and train your legs after they're shrunken down, quote unquote, because you just have less body water in them. The first session after that week off, you're going to get the pump of your life and your legs are going to go bigger than ever. You're going to go, oh, fuck, I guess I didn't lose any muscle. So you don't lose muscle in a week of easy training at all. And it's just like, look, if you're a forward-thinking person and you're not a fucking idiot, you could say, okay, if I take a break, I'm going to come back stronger. I mean, that's literally the case. Now, I don't blame anybody for this because I used to never take deloads. I used to think they were like shit pussies did. And also, like, you know, where are we getting a lot of our cultural information about this? Like, you've seen the Rocky movies, right? Like, they do the montage and it gets harder and harder and harder and he's barely able to do it. And then he's like in the fucking boxing ring the next scene getting punched in the face. I sure hope he took a couple days easy because if I was training against a world champion boxer, I would hope he was maximally tired the day of the event. That would be great. So, yeah, it's just all it's all fucking bro bullshit, man. <laughs>
Yeah, no, that that actually does make a lot of sense. And I, like I said, I don't think a lot of people, especially people in our kind of, you know, health and wellness space don't really think like, hey, maybe I need to just take a quick breather. Everything's going to be all right. Yeah, and, uh, muscle won't magically jump off your body. Yeah, yeah, I think a, a lot of people think that, and especially when, you know, you're not all used to being pumped up. I had a, uh, a dude um, who runs ketogenic bodybuilding, Rob Goodwin. He's awesome guy on there. And he... Uh, he trains every body part once a week and he calls it a pro split, which was kind of weird to me because I remember, you know, obviously everyone refers to it as a bro split, but he's like, look, if you just train it, you're not going to get the same pumped feeling, but I promise you, if you just train it nice and good and then leave it rest, you'll be all right. And I feel like that's kind of like a mental game for some people because everybody wants to be pumped up and look 100% all the time. But um, I'm sure you would know much better than me and just about anybody else that that's not sustainable to always be, you know, 8% body fat year round, you know, completely pumped up. <laughs> you could try it. It's not going to lead anywhere good. And, you know, like, man, I tell you what, I think a lot of us forget how adults behave versus how children behave. You know, like if, um, and we start behaving like children sometimes when we really want something. Adults know that the straightest path to something in the real world might not always be like a line. Right? Sometimes you have to take strategic steps backward to go forward. I mean, how the fuck do you even sell college to anyone? I mean, imagine being like a petroleum engineer or wanting to be a petroleum engineer. And someone's like, oh, you want to be a petroleum engineer? Like desperately. And you're it's their last year of high school. And they're like, okay, well, you should go to college. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, how much petroleum engineering do I get to actually do? Well, none until you get an internship your last year. Like, well, that's fucking stupid. I'm just going to go to the oil rig right now and work. Like, yeah, if you're going to be like someone who's a hand on the oil rig and I actually get to do an engineering and they're like, why not? Well, you got to learn shit, motherfucker. That means sitting in school is going to be boring, but it's worth it. But it's like delayed gratification, right? And that's just something as adults, people understand. Like you sacrifice some shit out to get some shit back later. Mm -hmm. So another way to think about planned breaks and training or just even sort of what we call auto-regulated or reactive breaks. Like when you feel really fucked up a few sessions in a row, you decide to take a break. You can see the break as anything you want, but one of the ways to see it is an investment in your future. I, you can even admit to yourself, I don't like taking this break. I would rather be at the gym, but I know that the human body has limits of recovery and it needs a little bit more time to recover if you've been beating it up. If you give it that time, you get bigger and stronger later. So when I'm deloading, I, of course I miss the gym, fucking love the gym, but I'm also like doing like this, like, ooh, when I get back, I'm going to reach an all-time new high. It happens every time. You know, I didn't used to buy into deloading, but it, it worked out so well so many times, I fucking learned. Right, right. Um, so kind of tailing on that, what do you feel about main gaining versus bulking and cutting? Because that seems to be something that's come up a lot recently. People say, oh, well, just main gain, eat at maintenance, and eventually you'll just gain muscle slowly. Do you think there's something to that, or do you think um, the optimal way might be to bulk and cut? I'm not a big you want to get. So like, let's say you weigh 170 pounds and you're kind of flabby. Well, you can main gain or gain tain or whatever the fuck it's called until you're like a pretty lean 170 if you have decent genetics. And then like, that's it. Cause you can't, so, so you can't for, just for reference values for someone with decent genetics, who's got a lot of training um, commitment, let's say five days a week, really good diet. Probably the most you can gain tain to is like 10% body fat. Your body doesn't get into like five, 6% body fat by eating away at your fat and building muscle at the same time. You're out of your fucking mind as soon as you dip below 10% body fat outside of some really weird circumstances, you're not gaining any muscle. You're just losing fat. So if you want to be really lean, gain taining is not going to do it or main gaining whatever the fuck. And then if you want to be any heavier than 170, by definition, you have to mass. Like uh, who's the guy that says they main gaining all the time? Greg Doucette, right? And uh, you know, he was like 240 or 230 in an off season at some point when he was a bodybuilder. I bet your ass he didn't fucking gain tain his way to that. So if you want to be as jagged as Greg Doucette ever was, you're going to have to do an intentional mass phase. Now, I think he does have a point that some people start off as a flabby 170 and the most they ever want to be is a jacked 160. Like then they, you know, they never have to do a focused mass phase ever. Then maybe at the, after they get pretty lean 170, just through gain taining, they can do a little mini fat loss phase and be a ripped 160. That'd be, that's totally cool. But if you want to be fucking much bigger than you are now, as a matter of fact, if you want to be any size that's heavier than your current body, then you're going to have to fucking mass gain. I started lifting weights my freshman year of high school and I, I weighed, I, I wrestled 103. I, I, I weighed 97 pounds in June of my fucking freshman year of high school. 
So can you imagine if some if I fucking watch Coach Greg at that point, if the internet had like zoomed back, <laughs> I'd be like, oh, I'll just gain tame my ass. And now I have like veins in my abs at 240. I mean, like this, you, I, you have to mask gain, right? And, um, and, and once you mask gain high enough, you've put on a bit of extra fat and it's probably a good idea to get rid of that. And then you cut and then you're back to maintenance and you coast there for a bit. And then you want to gain even more mass, you're going to have to mass. That doesn't mean you have to do a dirty bulk and eat fucking cookies and get ultra fat and wildly heavy, but you got to add a little bit of size every now and again. Think of it as sculpting a statue. You know, if, if I tell you, if I give you five pounds of clay and I say, make me a 20 pound statue, you're like, uh, what? That's fucking impossible. Now, at some point, you're going to have to add clay on. That doesn't mean you take a fucking truckload of clay and smash it onto whatever the fuck you've already built full of fat or whatever. But you got to slap on a little bit, artfully craft it, take a bit off, smash a lid, take a bit off. And that's how that's how almost every construction process works. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, so what do you think about when people say, well, his criticism is that when you bulk and cut, you're going to lose the muscle that you gained on the bulk in the cut. Um, in my retort to that, and you can add your piece of this as well, um, would be if you cut slow enough, then you can cut just strictly fat, because I believe a lot of the research suggests that if you resistance train sufficiently and have sufficient protein, and you don't go beyond like one to 2% a week, then you can lose up to 90% just fat. Am I right? Am I wrong? You're, you're, you're not even as right as you could be. So he's absolutely correct. And uh, even natural bodybuilders don't lose much actual muscle tissue or any at all when they do their fat loss phases, if they do them remotely intelligently. Losing fat is way easier than losing muscle, but gaining muscle is way harder than it is you know, to gain fat or, to, or actually to lose fat. So if losing fat is pretty easy while keeping your muscle on, but gaining muscle is pretty tough, driving the gains with some combination of muscle and fat actually kind of makes a little bit more sense, right? And, and the, the idea that people lose all of their muscle or uh, that they gained on a fat loss phase, I mean, how the fuck does bodybuilding work then? I mean, every competitive bodybuilder bulks and cuts because they have to, because they have to cut to the show. And almost all of them for years and years and years gain a steady amount of muscle mass over the course of their careers. Natural, enhanced, doesn't matter. So, you know, if you do extreme psycho cutting and you do it all wrong, are you going to pay the price? Yeah, fuck yeah, you will. But, uh, oh, hello, wife. Thank you. <laughs> I promise I have a wife. I'm not just a computer nerd in a basement. I mean, I am in a basement. But. Well, you have an OnlyFans um, account too, right? I, I'm actually in a, involved with a website called Mostly Fans. It's not, not OnlyFans. <laughs> they can pay or not pay. It doesn't matter. Um, what the fuck was I talking about? Yeah. So, you know, uh, empirically, when we actually look at the research, muscle loss is something that happens way minimally compared to fat loss. And over time, if you're not stupid about it, when you diet away some of the extra fat you've gained and then you gain muscle and fat, you can diet away essentially almost pure fat. And over time that adds up. Um, so I think that Greg Doucette definitely has uh, you know, a good critique of people that go to crazy extremes and that's fucking stupid. You know? And that's the thing to his credit, you don't wanna see a motherfucker who's like a 150 pound kid and he's like mass gained to 200 over three months. It was awful. And then I cut down to 155. And uh, I gained five pounds of muscle. Like you did all that for five pounds, fuck. But if that kid starts at 150 and over the course of six months gets to 170, and over the course of you know eight weeks cuts down to you know 158 or 57, he may maybe just as lean at 157 as he was at 150. And voila, you just repeat that process over and over. So I think the the best approach lies somewhere between main gaining and extreme bulk and cut insanity. Yeah, that seems uh, pretty logical to me as well. Um, so we only got a few about 15 minutes left and uh kind of wanted to ask you i didn't know that you were from moscow russia until i was um looking on your bio um with everything that's going on in the united states right now um do you see any parallels from where you were born and the history there and what's going on now mm -hmm. What specifically, what sort of events are you interested in me elaborating on? <laughs> no, just anything really, because right now with this COVID-19 hysteria, the vaccine mandates, um, 
it seems pretty totalitarian to most people and even people in the health world to me look like they're kind of scratching their heads at this like okay well you locked us in our homes you told us it's bad to go outside because you're gonna catch a germ but you're giving us nothing to improve our health you're just telling us sit and wait and don't do anything and then you know there were plenty of i believe childhood obesity raised by a quarter um you know, over the last year, which is absolutely heartbreaking, and nobody particularly went out to get healthier. Um, you know, what are your uh, thoughts kind of around some of the stuff that's been going on in the last two years? Sure. I think, uh, you know, like, so public health policy, which is, I guess, what this is, um, uh, some of it early in the pandemic made a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So at the time that lockdowns were first initiated, we really didn't know how nasty COVID-19 was. And the initial case fatality rates were like three and a half percent or something, which if those turned out to be infection fatality rates, like your chance of just getting COVID-19, your chance of dying from just getting it was three and a half percent. If you multiply that by the world population, when I mean, that shits on the Holocaust and World War II all combined, it would be the worst fucking thing that ever happened. Um, so we should have stayed completely fucking locked down if that was the case. But then the infection fatality rate turned out to be somewhere between 0.5% and 1%. So some, you know, some of the, uh, the the mask restrictions made some sense. As, as my familiarity with literature is that masks are marginally effective by a small margin, you know, to reduce cases and things like that. And then once the vaccines came out, they were all ultra effective and still are. And you know, then the infection fatality rate of COVID nineteen floated down to something like a really really bad flu season. And uh, now that they're pretty close to that now, and with Omicron for sure a bad flu season as far as infection fatality rates. It leaves me scratching my head as to how much incremental liberty we are willing to trade off for security. And, and, and there is a thing that sometimes liberty must be traded off for security. Uh, so, you know, during World War II, there was all kinds of crazy restrictions about what you couldn't, couldn't say, couldn't, couldn't do. And maybe that was worth it because we were fighting the fucking Nazis. And if we fucking weren't, you know, if we we're like, hey, man, you fucking like crazy ass libertarian Southern guy, like government doesn't tell me what to do. God damn it. We would have fucking Hitler would have been in charge and we'd all been fucked. But like, so there's time to fucking knuckle up and do what the government says. Uh, and shut the fuck up and go with the plan. But when the plan starts to make less and less sense, um, and uh, maybe not the government per se, but some, you know, uh, let's call them the sort of extreme, extreme left-leaning individuals, um, and they sometimes get, uh, unwilling to update their premises on the situation. In those cases, COVID-19 is really bad. Okay. COVID-19 is just bad. Okay. COVID-19 is just very marginally bad. It's kind of like the flu. Do we still lock down? Do we still have mandates? Do we still do this and that? And it's kind of like, huh, really? We're really doing all the same stuff? It, it starts to strain credulity a bit. And uh, one thing that, you know, the news media is, as usually, a huge help. Um, you know, they were obsessed with the infection fatality rate when it was a very high, scary number. Now that it is not a high or scary number, you hear almost no mention of it. And as a matter of fact, when they have experts to talk about it on, they sort of like ask them all the bad stuff. Like, how bad is Omicron? They're like, well, it's really infectious. And they're like, and how bad is it for you? And they go, well, it seems to be milder. They like sort of go, oh, okay, interesting. And then they go back to like how infectious it is. As you know, the news media is the only way they're going to get views to be maximum because they scare the living fuck out of you. So they have to exaggerate. And of course, many governments uh, seem to historically prefer a frightened citizenry that's willing to give the government a lot of power and a lot of importance, you know, like think about it. If, if you're, if you're in the leadership of the United States, you know, the leadership of something like the Soviet union or China, and if you're in leadership, you're always the fucking shit. Like you run shit and everyone knows you're always important, you know, like in the United States, I mean, the economy does most of the running. So like the markets do everything and the government employees aren't like celebrated as fucking heroes or frontline workers or some shit like Joe Biden like doesn't have shit to do with how the economy goes. So if there's nothing for a president to like fucking wage a war against, then a lot of times they just sit around and kind of go, ah, all right. And they don't feel so good about themselves. And some people I think need a sense of grand purpose. Like we're all struggling for something together. They can't just go and have a good time in society and interact as free people with each other. So COVID-19, I think for a lot of people, leadership included in many cases, and just regular people, mostly on the political left, seem to be like this rallying cry for something meaningful. Like finally we get to like <laughs> sit at home and wear masks and you know, masks have turned into the shit where it's like, if you have a mask on, you're a good person. Like so morally you're just better because you don't want to kill grandma or whatever. 
And look, you know, masks, I, I fully believe masks have a small marginal utility. But gee whiz, you know, a small marginal utility just it just doesn't get people excited. Even saying it deflates my 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 sense of, of, of grandiose, you know, superiority. So yeah, like you know, I do I think that the United States is anywhere remotely close to a, a, a communist uh, dictatorship? Absolutely not. The, the, the thought is preposterous. Uh, if we are to take what is currently happening and has happened as far as lockdowns and increase of government power during COVID-19 and continue on that path of, oh yeah, fuck it, let's just lock down more. But yeah, we're absolutely trending towards less and less social and economic freedom. And that doesn't lead to anywhere very good. Um, and it just, you know, for a while, we'll just be like, make our lives shittier and shittier. And that fucking blows. And I think it's just important to be a rational person. And when there's a serious fucking psycho disease, yeah, you know, shut the fuck up, wear a mask, lock down. And then when we realize that it's actually not that serious and, you know, there's trade-offs and you can just stay at home by yourself if you feel very threatened, then maybe it's time to open up a bit. And I thought, personally, I was fucking embarrassed. I told all my friends, I'm a huge biotech fan, huge capitalism fan in general. I was like, dude, watch this. As soon as corporations get these fucking vaccines, it's going to be the fucking shit. The vaccines are going to work. They're going to be out. And I'm like, you know, I, I predicted the vaccines were going to be out in November. I got that right. And I was like, the pandemic will be over. But then what I didn't realize is a bunch of people got the vaccines and they were still scared and they still sat at home and they still voted for mandates to like, you know, keep people indoors and wear masks. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, well, we got the vaccine. Let's get the fuck on with our lives. And a lot of people just seem to be, you know, uh, an interesting thing that um, a lot of folks on the conservative side uh, or libertarian side, I'm a libertarian myself, a lot of the thing they get wrong is they underestimate how much democratic support, unfortunately, pretty restrictive things like lockdowns and mandates have. Um, New Zealand and Australia, last I checked, had like 70 to 80 percent voter support for like countrywide lockdowns. Really? Oh, yeah. The vast majority of people want it. And, and all the stuff you see on news media about people protesting against it, that's the minority. Now, typically, when a majority restricts the rights of a minority, we call that oppression. <laughs> uh, right. But in this case, it's like, well, just you, you got to do a good job. And, and so and again, it's all about trade offs. It's like how much of a police state do you want for how long to save how many lives? What is the economic cost of all that? Um, to, to put it another way, you know, Australia can, can save maybe 10,000 people from dying from COVID doing lockdowns for another year. Or, or they can just take a shitload of their resources, send them to Africa and, and give clean water, food and housing and life to like 100 million people. I don't know. At some point, it just doesn't make any fucking sense. And unfortunately, with um, again, it comes into all or nothing thinking. People usually, in many cases, just don't think of safety as a marginal trade off. They think of it as an all or nothing thing. And if you think of safety as an all or nothing thing and you want all the safety, you're going to end up in a totalitarian regime sooner or later, hopefully later. Um, you know, like we don't think in the real world, in many cases, we don't think like this. So can you imagine going to a car dealership and being like, how safe is this car? They're like, well, it's very safe. Look, okay, so my chance of death is zero. They're like, well, no, you can go 90 in it and smash into a fucking pillar on the freeway and you'll for sure fucking die. <laughs> you know, we have six side airbags or whatever. It's not going to help you if you go at 90 and straight into a wall. And you say, well, I'm not even getting this car. And then you what the fuck? So a lot of people, they want to be completely safe from COVID-19. There's no such thing. So a lot of people just haven't calibrated where they think that safety margin is or, or compared it to anything rational. And now real quick, and then I'll oh, end rant. Now yeah. that COVID-19 is roughly comparable to a really nasty uh, season of the flu, it really does strain the imagination as to why anyone would plan to continue any kind of lockdown, et cetera. Interestingly enough, Israel, the state of Israel, which which I have no political affiliation, even though my last name is half the fucking country's name, uh, the state of Israel actually like a few weeks ago uh, opened up a bunch of international travel because they're like, like, it just doesn't work. Omicron's too viral and it's not even that dangerous. So just fucking go wherever you want. So a lot of countries are starting to ease up. Hopefully more of them go down that road. Right. No, I, I agree. Well, yeah, there's a lot there. But um, what I wanted to say is I am a uh, auto mechanic uh, for my day job. And you, you do see people as soon as a recall comes out on their vehicle that, uh, you know, they think, oh, my God, I'm going to die. It's like, dude, you've been I was talking to my fiance about this yesterday, too, funny enough. But uh, people beat the living shit out of a car for 10 years and then they'll get a recall. And now all of a sudden it's dangerous. But um. Yeah, you know what, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, that, um, you know, it, it is funny how now we have vaccines, and, you know, there's a lot of questions surrounding that efficacy, and, you know, how long it lasts, or 
whatever. I don't have all the answers. I don't think anybody does. But you know, you would think if you have faith in the solutions that have been you know presented to you and the solutions that you've taken and put faith in, then you can go on living your life, right? But it, you would it's think, so, <laughs> yeah. But but it's so weird because these people are still wearing masks by themselves outside. Which, like you said, there's probably is some. Well, there is a marginal effect to masks because you're reducing the total viral load in the air. Outside, the marginal effect, as research has indicated, is pretty close to zero. It's, right. it's actually measured at zero. Um, it, it, being in your own car by yourself, there's no marginal effect of wearing a mask. And the, and the people that do that, I mean, I don't know, maybe they're trying to, I think a lot of those people have like some kind of vision that they're like encouraging like a social normative thing. They're like, well, if I, if I wear my mask all the time, they will normalize mask wearing. Motherfucker, we don't want to normalize mask wearing. We want to get to a time when mask wearing is not fucking necessary. And if you deal with a nation of adults, adults can put on masks when it's a good idea and take the fucking mask off when it's not a good idea. So I think to me, when I see people who are like over masking, maybe not all the time, but a lot of the time, I think they're, they're playing that like um, social signaling game of the I'm a good person, you know, maybe even to themselves. I think people put on a mask. Well, some people are like, oh, gee whiz, you know, I'm really helping. It's like World War II all over again. It's like putting scrap metal in to the pile so they can build more submarines to kill the Nazis. Like that's how they feel when they put on a mask which is like totally a thing. Maybe that was cool. Like the first six weeks, of the pandemic, now it's getting so fucking old and it just doesn't, you know, it used to be able to just trust the science. We're like, Oh, we're not. The science says, you know, that the shit is basically like the flu now. And they're like, well, you know, what about sequelae? It is an infinite number of regressions of reasons why we should stay locked down at the end of it. I think some people are just really, really afraid uh, and uh, just aren't thinking very rationally and are sort of in that uh, kind of addicted to that COVID mindset and they, it's almost like maybe PTSD-ish, PTSD light, where they're like, the disease, and like, it's okay now, it's not as dangerous. And they're like, I don't know, I, it's still, uh, and you know, that's an emotion, that's not reason. And ir irrationality is not, not, a good, not a good substrate for policy, I'll say that. Right, and I feel kind of bad because I wanna like get angry with these people and just shake them and slap them around and be like, look, you gotta live your life. But at the same time, the news has not helped at all. And when you're being told all day, if you go outside and breathe this in or catch this, you're going to die. And that all young and healthy people are dying from this, which, okay. Yeah. You could probably find that, but I think everybody knows that's the exception. That's not the rule. Yeah. I mean, everyone, I, I think you're being very charitable. Not everyone knows that because a lot of people, all they need is like a little grain to confirm their intuition and they go off to psycho land. You know, like I, I remember one of the, you know, it's just a very, very hard left website I was reading and it was like dispelling COVID myths. And one of the myths they dispelled was COVID isn't dangerous for young adults. And the way they dispelled the myth was COVID actually kills XYZ number of young adults per year in the United States. But of course it does. COVID kills dozens of young adults every few months in the United States. But like, lightning strikes kill fucking more people man like when you have 300 million people you can't put raw numbers out as data you got to go compare to what like if you're 97 years old and you have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease you do not want covid as a fucking damn near death sentence right but if you're 17 years old and healthy your chances of dying from covid are are just obliterated by like 1000 other diseases that are all infectious that you get anytime. So it's like, what the fuck are we talking about? So is it technically a myth that COVID isn't, a, isn't, uh, isn't dangerous to young people? Yeah. In the sense, if you're looking at again, all or nothing, like is COVID completely safe for 17 year olds? Nothing's fucking completely safe. You could die. An ice cream cone could kill you. If you're carrying it upside down, you fall down the stairs and you fucking blood comes out of your eye and ice cream cones kill. And you know, like again, the news media, there is a two-way street. I, I, I do I do have to say, we often say, oh, the news media is so bad. Motherfucker, you're the one tuning into that shit. I don't mean you. I mean you, the viewer. Right. You know, like if right. you fucking turn on CNN or Fox News or Newsmax, wherever the fuck you get your news, and you hear all this fucking crazy shit, and you're like, oh, man, oh, fuck, it's so bad, and you keep tuning in, what do you think they're going to keep showing you? If you look at Facebook and a piece of good news comes up on your feed and you're like, man, don't care, and a piece of bad news comes up and you just click on the fucking bad news all the time, well, you know, these people need to make money. Their advertising marketers have families to feed. They're going to give more, give you more bad news. And it's all algorithms now. Anyway, the algorithms doesn't give a fuck. It's going to just put more bad news in front of you. So if you say, oh, you know, like COVID's the worst thing ever, and you click on that shit, you know, like we can blame the news media, but it's really the person that's to blame. And because our news feeds are often completely individualized at this point, what you click on really does kind of fucking determine. So, you know, if you have a nasty, what is that? There was like a term for it almost like 
post 9-11, I don't know if you remember this, but post 9-11, there was, pretty there was like, yeah, yeah. Well, so there's like a, it's the first time that a huge major event happened. There was a true 24 hour news cycle. So you would just like watch your TV and it would just talk about the same shit every 15 minutes because we knew almost nothing. And at some point people were like, if I'm not getting any more news out of this, why the fuck am I tuned in? It was kind of this like addictive thing where the news was so bad, you just kind of wanted to tune in. I think that's how COVID's been for some people where like you just tune in for more, more bad news. And as soon as the news isn't bad, you tune out and then they like, give more bad news for you and you tune back in. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy where all you just get is fucking bad news. So yeah, news media is to blame, but really consumers of media are to blame. If people decided to consume more rational news or more optimistic news, then the news media is a profit-driven enterprise. They don't give a flying fuck what they put on your face. They'll give you what you want to see. But a lot of people are pessimistic and fucking really afraid of shit. And that's what they get. Fucked up. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Um, I've kept you a little bit longer than uh, I'm sure you would have liked. Um, let's end on a positive note. So um, what I've began to start asking all my guests, what does uh, Liberty look like to you? Yeah, boy, do I have a great answer for you. Well, I think it's great, but you probably think it's shitty. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> all the spirit of Liberty. Um, I'll give you, I guess, a strange way to think about it, but I promise I'll explain. Liberty is not giving a fuck about what other people do. It's not all of liberty, but it's an important point that I think may resonate with some people. For example, are those people over there gay or straight? A liberty-minded individual doesn't care. Are they black or white? I don't care. Is that person on his way to do drugs or he is on his way to go to his job? Don't care. It, 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 a city like New York City, people pass each other on the street a trillion times. They're not busybodies. They're not like, you, you should be doing this. Where are you going? Are you going to work? Fuck that. Liberty is the ability to be so secure within yourself and so accepting of others that you allow people to make their choices, even if you maybe don't super agree with their choices or their choices kind of skeeve you out. It's the ability to just be like, you know what? I'm going to let everyone live their lives as they see fit, so long as they don't hurt other people that are third parties to the interaction do whatever the fuck you want. Like, you know, a lot of times like uh, I, I get asked on, on podcasts and stuff, like, do you approve of this practice or disapprove? I always kind of cringe at saying when I don't approve of something like, oh, well, lifting with a partial range of motion, that's bad. Like, I don't give a fuck, lift all the partial run you want. I want you to be informed. But at the end of the day, if I see someone at the gym cutting their squats high, I'm not like that guy's a fucking moron. What a piece of shit. I'm like, he's just a different part of his life. I used to be that guy. It's all right. So to me, liberty is an ability to not, in the nicest, kindest, sort of most karmic way possible, not give a shit what other people are doing and just let them live their lives how they see fit, so long as it doesn't hurt you or anyone you love. That's it. That's a great answer, actually. Um, so what does health look like to you as well? Oh, man. I was going to give a joke answer, but that joke was going to stock. I just ran it through my head. It was going to be no good. Um, <laughs> I was going to say health is when I get all my body parts replaced by machine parts, which is really just like my, my, kind of my goal. Like Megatron, yeah. Just, yeah, 100%. I want to be a robot. The biological body is a fucking pain in my ass. Um, you know, health looks like to me, uh, like you go to the doctor and he doesn't say that anything is really fucking wrong with you and you need to worry about shit. And it's not just that experience, it's the knowledge deep inside that you're probably gonna be okay tomorrow and you're gonna be able to use your body for what you like to do and you don't have to worry. You know, like there's people, and it's funny because I say my definition of what health needs to be seems like so simple and fucking stupid. You're like, really, that's it? But that's it is something like 80 million Americans can't say is even true for them. I mean, the shitload of Americans go to the doctor's office and the doctor's like, your blood sugar is unsustainable. And they're like, oh, I know. He's like, you should eat better. You should take your medicine we give you. And they're like, I'll try. And they go home and they eat fried chicken and pizza and they don't do shit. They don't take the diabetes medication and they're not healthy. And then, you know, maybe they're hiking with their kids, visiting them in college or some shit. And they're going to kind of up a steep hill and they start to breathe really heavy. And they have to think like, is this the fucking minute? Is this the day I get a heart attack? I don't know. But health to me means that you don't have any proximate worries. Like I'm healthy. My blood works fine. So when I go lift in the gym, I'm not exactly afraid I'm just going to drop dead. And a lot of people deep down, they can't say that. So to me, health doesn't mean you have chiseled abs or fucking ripped or you can run 18 miles. That's fitness. That's sweet. Health to me means that you can wake up in the morning and think, you know, I'm probably not going to die of anything health related today unless something goes really wrong. If you're doing that alone, man, you're winning at life. And if you're not doing that, if you wake up and you go, fuck, 
could this could be the day I have a heart attack because I've been an irresponsible piece of shit my whole life and I haven't changed still. Maybe some health is a good idea to pursue. Yeah, well, I completely agree with that. I think that's a totally reasonable answer. Um, Mike, where can everybody find you? Um, plug your stuff. Anything exciting you got going on? We'll get out of here. Only fans. It's the only place I'm at nowadays. <laughs> Sorry, mostly fans. What was he saying? You're mostly um, fans. <laughs> mostly fans. Um, I'm, you know, a, a big place to find me now is YouTube. So YouTube Renaissance Periodization. If you can't spell that, just type in Dr. Mike Strength. Dr. Mike Muscle, I'll come up at some point, the algorithm will shoot you my way, and then subscribe to Renaissance Periodization, just the big letters RP. We'll put out YouTube videos four or five times a week. Uh, they're almost always informative. Sometimes they're funny. I always try to make them funny, but I'm not that funny, so it usually doesn't work out. And uh, off the YouTube, you can link to my Instagram, the website, all that stuff. Uh, buy stuff from me. If you like anything that I'm selling, it's great because I have a Lamborghini fund. I buy one Lamborghini uh, every time I get enough money to do so. And so far, I have zero Lamborghinis, but, but I'm trying. <laughs> Well, then you're gonna have to start putting out the uh, Dr. Mike's one eyed wonder muscle and uh, see how much uh, fun it gets you your way. Uh, you know, the penis technically isn't a muscle, but boy, oh boy, does it, can it make you money on the internet? Um, listen, since you're a mechanic, will you, when, when I get my Lamborghini, will you fix it if I get into a wreck? If you're willing to come to southwestern Pennsylvania or Florida, if I move to Florida, because I would really like to, then oh by the way i want to say fuck you because in your one video you said no one wants to be in our rural pennsylvania you know i uh <laughs> that's when i lived in philadelphia that was a that was a direct shit on the rest of pennsylvania you know what though rural pennsylvania is fucking beautiful I, my wife my wife um did some um uh, part of her medical residency in rural pennsylvania so i lived there with her Come on, man. Like, I live in rural Michigan. It blows dick out here. You can admit that rural Pennsylvania is boring as fuck. That's no, why no, you're trying to go to Florida. Come on. <laughs> well, we also just got, like, a foot of snow today. I was up at 4 o'clock in the morning shoveling snow. So, uh, uh, I got to look uh, outside. Do we have a foot of snow? <laughs> uh, I would I would hope not because I don't wish this on anybody. First day of, like, bad snow this year, and I'm like, I, I, like, I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. They get those Florida feels when the snow comes down. It's all hunky-dory until the snow comes. Yeah, my fiance and I are going to Florida in March, and then we're getting married in uh, November in Florida as well. So, uh, uh, congratulations in advance. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, hopefully, we'll get to talk sometime uh, before or after that. Um, this was a blast, Mike. I really appreciate you coming on, man. It was also a blast for me. Thanks for having me on. Cool, of course. All right, everybody. This is in Liberty and Health. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.